Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. He explained why the Kalipa is called Elohim Acherim, other gods. Everything derives its sustenance from Elohim, from Hashem. Everything has to have a godly spark in order for it to exist. But it comes from Acherim, from Hashem's back, so to speak. For example, when a person, when you hate someone, you despise them, you can't stand them, but you have to force to give them something, for whatever reason. So you hold your nose, you turn your face, and you like throw it, like here, take it, I don't want to see you. So, too, who, who does Hashem shine His face to? Who does Hashem smile to? Who does Hashem give wholeheartedly and willingly to holiness? Those who are egoless, those who are acknowledge Hashem. But those, the clippers, who are arrogant, egotistical, self centered, self absorbed, Hashem despises Klip. He hates Klip. But nevertheless, He creates and sustains the Klip. While He's simultaneously, He hates it, but He sustains it. Why does He sustain it if He hates it? Because in order to give us freedom of choice, in order to make our choices meaningful, you have to have a real choice. It has to be a real competition, a stiff competition. And it can go either way. And you can lose, you can gain. Then when you gain, then when you make the right, wise choice, then when goodness triumphs and holiness triumphs, then it's meaningful. If it's a meaningful competition and there's a meaningful battle, even though we know it's a foregone conclusion, we know that eventually holiness will triumph. And the battle between Jerusalem and Athens, Jerusalem will win. So if it was a foregone conclusion, then it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be meaningful. It's only when we live in a world where it appears to be that Athens is winning. And then, through our choices, through the wisdom of our choices, by choosing what's moral and ethical and spiritual and godly, then, then that triumph has meaning. You've earned it. So Hashem wants to sustain, to create and to sustain the klipa, which is the antithesis of holiness, which Hashem despises and truly hates. But nevertheless, He sustains and creates. Why? He creates and sustains. Why? He holds His nose, so to speak, and like throws it to the back. Here, I'm going to sustain you because you're, you're part of the purpose. The purpose is not, it's not an end in itself. God forbid there's no end in ego, arrogance, haughtiness. On the contrary, God promises that eventually they will vanish. Arrogance, ego, all of this will vanish in the face of the earth. There's no need, there's, it's not an end in itself, God. It's a necessary evil, temporary existence only to serve its purpose. And the moment its purpose is realized, it will be gone forever. Goodbye, good riddance. There's no need, there's no want, there's no interest. 
Matter of fact, Hashem despises and hates evil. But evil serves a purpose. When there's evil, then that gives meaning to the good. And then the, the choices that we make are genuine and we get, we've earned our reward. So it's to give us the greatest gift of all, the gift of freedom of choice. So therefore Hashem creates and sustains it. But He does it while He's turning His face away. I hate you, I despise you, but I'm going to sustain you. Because you serve a purpose. You also serve a purpose. So that's why it's called Elohim Acherim. Other gods. In other words, they get a godly sustenance. Everything that exists must have a godly sustenance. But they get it, Acherim, like from the back. Like Hashem like, turned his back, doesn't want to even look at them. He despises them and hates them so much, doesn't want to even look at them. The lies, the egotism, the arrogance. But Hashem says, I'll sustain you. Because, only because you, because you serve a purpose. Because you will be defeated. That's one reason why they call it Al-Kibachir. That's what we learned the other week. This week we're going to learn another reason. Al-Kibachirim also means literally idolatry. It's a reference to idolatry. Because what we're discussing now, we're discussing something more subtle. Arrogance, sense of self, self-awareness, self-consciousness, egotism, self-absorption, self-centeredness comes quite natural to us but all of that is klipa this is the root and the source of klipa but it's a more subtle klipa the sense of self but then there is literally idolatry that is when a person at least acknowledges God but he thinks he's also a God God is the God over many gods but then there is even a lower level, which is atheism, when a person totally, totally denies God and doesn't even acknowledge his existence. Not only that he is a God, God is a God and he is a God, but that he doesn't even acknowledge God's existence. So he's saying that symptom. God concealed himself and by creating the world through his speech and through the tzimtzum, the contraction we also have the human aspect of speech which is when a person speaks the words separate from the source they're independent of the source they have a life of its own before the speech when the words were part of the person they were unified and inseparable from the person but after one speaks, the words of a life of its own, you can't take it back. Once you speak, it's gone, it's gone, it's done. So even though from Hashem's point of view, you can't really compare Hashem's speech to human speech, because God's speech is not like human speech. Even after He speaks, it's like before He speaks. The words remain unified within, within Hashem. But nevertheless, from our perspective, as a result of the tzimtzum, God's ability to contract Himself, we sense the effect of the words, the effect, the impact of the words on us is the equivalent of human speech. So we sense as if it's as if it's independent, as if the words are separate from its source. And therefore, it, 
it creates that sense of ego that we have the sense of separateness sense of independence sense of disconnect which can take on many different levels there's one level where a person senses there's an I he acknowledges God but there's an I you know God is the almighty the supreme being the omnipotent the omniscient but I am also somebody God is the big body but I'm, I'm a somebody but that sense of I that's the root and source of idolatry that arrogance sense of ego and that's why God despises ego and ego arrogance is the equivalent of idolatry but that's the root and the source but then you have on a lower level with the tzimtzum is so intense the disconnect is so is so pronounced that the person doesn't even acknowledge there is a God doesn't even acknowledge that there is a cause fine you're not, you don't worship God you're not nullified before God but at least acknowledge there's an original cause but then there's a symptom, a level of a symptom where a person is so disconnected that he doesn't even acknowledge that there's a speaker. There is no cause. We're just here. Why am I here? I don't know. I don't need a why. I don't need a justification. I am. Period. There is no builder, and there is no author, and there is no artist, and there is no writer, and there is no, there's no creator. There's no cause. I am. Period. That's literally, I doubt, when a person worships himself, worships his own mind. Where God is not even part of the picture. I'm not for God and I don't deny God. <laughs> it's simply not part of the equation. God is so, so, so much not a fact that I don't even have to deny Him. It's irrelevant. What God? When God? It doesn't mean anything. That's how disconnected. The symptom is so intense and so powerful that although the truth is that the world is completely nullified before God because the, even after God speaks it's just like before He speaks the words and letters are contained and are part inseparable and a part of God unified in God's absolute unity essence but nevertheless the way we perceive our reality there's a level of klipa which is so disconnected that not, not only don't they believe in God not only they don't even deny God God is simply not a fact, not a reality. All there is is ego, I. Where do we come from? I always was. I always will be. That's why we can't accept death. From an ego perspective, that's the way we feel. We were always here and we always will be. Maybe mentally, intellectually, we can conceptualize the world existed without us. And the world will continue to exist without us. But emotionally, psychologically, we sense as if we are the beginning and the middle and the end of the entire universe. We're selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. It comes natural. Six billion people. You don't have to go to school. It comes in all languages. You don't have to go to school to learn to be egotistic. So the disconnect is so powerful, is so intense, that we feel no connection. We don't even feel that there's a speaker. The words are like a life of its own. Where did it come from? I don't know. It just is. It didn't come from anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It just is. It's a reality. It's a fact. So this is Elohim Achirim literally. This is literally idolatry. We deny God. 
Okay, now he's going to explain how is it possible that we come to this level of idolatry. We come to the lowest level of idolatry. A level which totally denies God, the reality of God. Or even lower. Even to deny is at least a level. To deny means you have to at least deny God. You have to at least reckon with God. You have to at least deal with God. Either you admit or you deny but then there's a new level. God is simply not part of the equation. He's not part of the language. He's simply irrelevant. I don't deny. I'm not for. I'm not against. I just couldn't kill him. This is the lowest level. Where does this come from? And that's what he's going to explain now. Second paragraph, page 292. Now, the supernal will of the quality of countenance, i.e. the inner aspect of God's will, which is directed toward the ultimate object of God's desire, is the source of life which animates all worlds. But since it is not bestowed on the Sitra Achra at all, and even the hinder part of the divine will is not actually clothed within it, but merely encompasses it from above, therefore it is the abode of death and impurity. May God preserve us from them. It's spiritual death and spiritual impurity. What's purity? Purity is anything that's connected to life, to the source of life, to godliness. That's purity. The absence of life is the ultimate source of impurity. Because the absence of life means the absence of godliness. Anything that's connected to the source of life is alive. The angels who are connected to the source of life are eternal. The angels are like electricity that's connected to its source, to the generator. So as long as it's connected, there's no death. Angels don't die. Some of them burn up in ecstasy, but but there's, there's no death. There's no impurity. They're holy. It's only, only human beings, only in this physical world, that there's death. Death is the ultimate source of impurity. God created the world. Adam, Adam and Chava were, were programmed to live forever. Why should there be death? Just like the soul lives forever. The body, which is connected to God, should also live forever. Death came as a consequence, not as a punishment, as a consequence of Adam and Chava eating from the tree and they became self-aware they became egotistical they lost their purity they lost their innocence as a consequence since they became self-aware they became egotistical disconnected from their source as a consequence they introduced death into the world that was a punishment as a consequence and that's why death is the ultimate source of impurity so it's the antithesis of pure purity is anything that's connected with God Anything that's egotistical and arrogant and independent and cut off, disconnected, that is spiritual death, which also leads to physical death. It doesn't last. Nothing impure lasts. Only holiness and truth live on forever. The Torah is eternal. God is eternal. Everything else lives and dies. So holiness, that's is purity, is anything is connected to God is holy and pure and is eternal, lives on forever. The death is the absence of life and the absence of godliness, concealment of godliness, and that's the source of impurity. The disconnect from God. So why are they Klippa disconnected? Because Everything that exists must have a sustenance, a divine sustenance. Otherwise, it couldn't exist. But the divine sustenance that it receives is from the all-encompassing light. 
it's not from the internal light, it's the all-encompassing light. The internal light is a light or the life force that you feel, you can sense, you're conscious of, you're aware of, you feel that you're alive. Then there is an all-encompassing life which you don't really sense. It's, it's all-encompassing, it's simultaneous. It's, it's, a, it's a sense that's beyond our conscious, conscious self. It's a, a sense of the whole, a sense of... It's beyond the human mind even to comprehend. You know, it's a general sense of the whole that um, you know, we really are in touch with. Usually we're in touch with a, our conscious self things that we can understand, things that we can define, we can label, put put into words. But an all-encompassing sense is very hard to put into words. We all have that experience. You know, sometimes you have, you get a feeling for something. You know, if someone, you went to an opera and there were a hundred-piece band and it was a three-hour piece and someone asked you, how was it? And you, you just summon up a sense of the whole experience. That sense is in one split second, you're encompassing everything that happened that whole evening and the, the, but there's no way you can put it into words it's just a sense of the whole if you try to begin to describe it then you have to start putting it into words and into language and that's, that's really very detailed and very, very, very limited and that's usually that's our sense of consciousness that's usually the level that we operate on well you have people some people just give you a, you have, just have a f- sense about them you can't put it into words. One person walks into the room, you feel uncomfortable. Make you nervous. You can't put it into words. You don't know why. It just make you nervous. Other people walk into the room, you breathe easier. You're, you're, you're just happy to see them. You can't even explain it. It's inexplicable. There's maybe thousands or millions of details that if you had to begin to describe why, what's going on, maybe it would take you the rest of your lifetime. But it's just a general sense that you get. A feeling it's more of a feeling because you can't even put it into words about this person and but that's an all-encompassing type of awareness a general type of awareness just like you have life you have a general life you're alive every cell of your body is alive every bone in your body every fiber of your being it's, it's all-encompassing life your toenail your brain it's all alive <laughs> but then you have a conscious life a detailed life a specific life your heart has a specific life. It's an emotional life. Your brains think intellectually. And every organ in your body has its unique life expression. The hands could move and, could, uh, you can, and the feet, you can walk and you can dance. You know, so, but that's a very specific life force, a life force that you can feel. You can, but then you have an all-encompassing light. And that's a parable to Hashem. Hashem creates the world, sustains the world. There's the life that's internal, that, that's, uh, the, that we sense, that we feel, that's very specific to each individual, individual being. And then you have an all-encompassing life. Just like the human body has so many different organs and all different parts, yet there's one encompassing life, life that encompasses it all. And they're equally alive. So too, there's an all-encompassing life where God creates and sustains all of the worlds, from the angels, from heaven to earth, material, spiritual, all of the myriads of creatures. But that's a, a life that you don't sense. You don't sense that life. Just like we don't sense that all-encompassing life. 
Our whole frame of reference is usually our conscious self, which is a very limited, limited, finite self. That part that we can define and put into words and in concepts. And... But the truth is, the human body is so complex. There are billions of things happening in the human body simultaneously. It's so infinitely complex, we can't even begin to, be, to fathom. And yet it all happens in a split second. But that's not the way we, we think and the way we process information and what we perceive and what we appreciate and what we can sense. We can perceive and sense is one word at a time, one idea at a time, past, present, future. You know, it's like taking the ocean and reducing it to a drip drop. But that's, that's not... The life is an ocean. But that's the all-encompassing life. We don't sense that. We don't feel that. We're not in tune with that. Usually. And what we are in tune with is the drip, the drop. The, the limited, finite. So too, God creates the world simultaneously. He creates and sustains the entire world. This whole world, everything is happening in this world simultaneously. One split second. Six billion people. Everything is happening on so many different levels. And it all happens in one split second. So that's an all-encompassing life that we can grasp and we don't sense and we don't appreciate. And we're not even aware of. And then you have the internal life which is specific to each individual being. So the klipa, the klipa does not receive its life from the internal life. The internal it receives its life from the encompassing life. What God encompasses are the klipa. And therefore, it's, it's, like, it's like remote. It's like from a distance. And even that light is also, is also remote and removed from, from the klipa. Because the klipa is totally unaware of this divine energy. While this divine energy is creating it and sustaining it, but it's totally remote from the klipa. It's removed and remote. It's abstract and totally removed. So the klipa is totally unaware, blissfully unaware of its very source. Its entire being is nothing other than it's being created by God. And yet the klipa, the arrogant, egotistical individual, is totally oblivious of God. While God is creating and sustaining and at the same moment, he's totally oblivious because the life force, the life force that's creating and sustaining him is an encompassing, it's remote, it's, it's, it's totally beyond his perception. So he's totally unaware of it. And that's why it's a place of impurity. There's a disconnect from God. While God is creating and sustaining him, at the same time, it's a total disconnect because he doesn't, it's not conscious of it. He doesn't feel it. And when you don't feel it, and you're not conscious of it, then it's just abstract. And therefore, it's not only not godly, it's the antithesis of godliness. So God is creating and sustaining something that's the antithesis of godliness. But yet, in order for anything to sustain, it's not enough to have the all-encompassing life force. You also need some internal life force. So even the klipa has to have something, a trace, a drop, something from that internal life of holiness. So how is it that the klipa doesn't sense that light, that internal light? So we can continue.
For the minute measure of light in life that it derives and that it absorbs internally from the external aspect of divine holiness is in a state of actual exile within it, as in the concept of the exile of the Shekhinah within the Klipot described earlier. So even that minute light, which every being must have in order to be created and to be sustained, but this minute light is an exile. and cannot express itself. What is the meaning of exile? The meaning of exile is, just like when a person is in exile, you're in prison, you're in exile. You can't express yourself, you can't roam around freely, you can't do as you wish. So too, this is one of the punishments of the soul is that the soul is reincarnated, but not in a human being. It's reincarnated in an animal. And for the soul, that's terribly painful. Because when the soul is reincarnated in a human being, the soul could express itself. But when the soul is reincarnated in an animal, it's trapped. It can't, it can't express itself. The soul is in, is in agony. The soul is aware, but the soul is trapped. It has no way to express itself. That's the deepest exile. So too, the minute level of divine life and energy that creates and sustains Klippa, this arrogant being, this minute light is, is in a state of exile. It can't express itself. Because the person is not a vehicle for godliness. In order to internalize godliness, in order to be able to express godliness, you have to be nullified. You have to be egoless. The more egoless you are, the more transparent you are, the more the divine energy is able to flow through you, unhindered. But the more egotistical and arrogant you are, the more you trap and you exile the divine spark, that divine life force. And divine life force can't express itself. And you cannot internalize that life force. And therefore, instead of instead of you internalizing it and refining you, it actually becomes counterproductive. You just become more arrogant and more egotistical. You're not a vessel, you're not a vehicle in order to receive, to absorb divine light. It's just counterproductive. Which is the reason why Yitzchak could not bless Esau, give him the blessings. He thought that if he's going to shower Esau with holiness, with intense holy blessings... Maybe that will redeem Esau and that will release the sparks. But the truth is, Esau couldn't handle it. Esau couldn't digest those intense and those powerful blessings. He didn't have the vessel and the vehicle. It's like instead of eating food, digesting it and swallowing it properly, and then the food becoming part, internalizing the food and becoming part of your bloodstream and giving you strength, it's like you swallow the food without chewing and digesting it and just gives you a stomachache. It doesn't do anything for you. On the contrary, it just creates a problem. So instead, it wouldn't have done anything for Esau. It wouldn't have refined him. It wouldn't have elevated him. It wouldn't have transformed him. It wouldn't have changed him. On the contrary, he couldn't digest it. He couldn't internalize it. On the contrary, it would just, it would just, it would just trigger and become trigger a greater level of arrogance. Look how great I am! I received, I received such blessings. It would only distance him and cause him to become even further away from from godliness. So the spark is trapped. It's an exile. It has no way to express itself. There's no vessel, there's no vehicle 
the being has no vehicle, is not a vehicle in a vessel to receive godliness. And the, and the godliness that it does receive, everything must have godliness to create it, to sustain it, doesn't do anything for it, doesn't refine it, transform it, elevate it, on the contrary. So the, the divine spark is trapped in a very painful, agonizing exile. And that's the idea of the Shekhinah, when you talk about the Shekhinah as an exile. Instead of the Shekhinah, the presence of God being felt, and the Shekhinah radiating, and you feel the Shekhinah, you sense the Shekhinah, you sense God's presence, and you sense holiness. Instead, all you sense is arrogance, ego, I. And God is totally obscured. And anything godly, and refined, and noble, and genuine, and deep, and spiritual and authentic is totally buried, submerged on the coarseness, on the arrogance, and under the thick shell, the thickly, the divine spark is trapped in an agony, in a very bitter and painful exile. So the main source of the life force of the Klippa comes from the all-encompassing life of God which as it is, is all-encompassing, is transcendent, is remote and removed and totally beyond our whole frame of reference, beyond our consciousness. So firstly, primarily it receives its life force from, from God's back, so to speak. So God is not even showing His face. It's not internal. It's just from the all-encompassing life force since this is part of the plan, this is part of the purpose. In order to give meaning to good, therefore we have evil. So therefore evil is created and evil is sustained and evil is tolerated temporarily until it will be totally triumphant and, 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 and obliterated. And tri- uh, transformed. So it's a temporary evil. So it firstly receives its life force in the all-encompassing light because this is part of the general divine plan. Without the, the being having any sense of godliness. It's remote and removed from it. But even the minute level of divine energy that has to be internal in order to create and sustain the being, this minute level of energy is also an exile, in a very painful trap, buried, submerged, with no outlet, no way of it to express it. Because the clip is simply not a vessel, not a vehicle to internalize godliness. Because in order to internalize godliness, you have to have humility. When you're humble then when you receive something from God, it humbles you even more. And then the more, you, the more you're able to receive even a more intense level of light. And the, then it refines you even more. And then you're able to receive, it draws down a deeper level of light. And ad infinitum. So then it's, it's a healthy, you internalize it, you digest it, it becomes part of your, your flesh and blood. And then you grow from level to level. But Kalipa, you're blocked. You're trapped with arrogance, you can't crack through the shell. You can't receive the divine energy and internalize it. So on the contrary, it just triggers a greater level of arrogance. The more you receive, the more arrogant you become. The more distant, the further away you become from your root and from your source. The more distorted your life becomes, the more twisted. He concludes, it is for this reason. It is for this reason, too, that the klipa is termed other gods, apart from the reason given above. Namely, that the klipat derive from Achoraim, the hinder part of God's will, for it constitutes actual idolatry and a denial of the unity of God, the supreme King of kings, 
the Holy One, blessed be He. So he's saying, as a result, they totally deny God. Deny the existence of God. Total denial. Atheism. Total denial of God. He's talking about two different levels. There's one level where the Kalipa could acknowledge God. They don't have to deny God. They could acknowledge the existence of God. They could even be religious. They acknowledge God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, God is the supreme being, the almighty, the original cause. But God is something. God is the cause and I'm the effect. If the cause is something, the effect is also something, a little something. God is the big something and I'm the little something. The big body and the little body, but I'm a little body too. I'm also a God. So it's not a contradiction. I can, I can acknowledge God. I don't have to totally deny God. Because since God is, God is an abstraction, the life force that we receive is from God's back, so to speak, not from His face. It's from God's transcendent self, from His all-encompassing light. So therefore, the reality of God is, is, is an abstraction. And therefore, you can come to the level where you reduce God to a cause, to the original cause. You reduce God to religion. You reduce God to a supreme being, the original cause. Of course, it's a distortion. God is not the original cause. We're not the effect. We created nothing. We are nothing. And we are created into something. Something from nothing. Inherently, we are nothing. And God has to constantly create us and sustain us. And without God, we are nothing. And therefore, we worship God. We don't only acknowledge God as the omnipotent and the omniscient and the creator and the original cause. But what we realize without God, we are nothing. God is everything. God is our very substance. God is our very being. God is our very essence. There is nothing other but God. There's no existence other than God. And therefore, we worship God. It's not like a student-teacher relationship. God is the teacher and we're the student. You don't worship your teacher. You admire your teacher. You respect your teacher. You don't worship the teacher. But we worship God because we're nothing before God. But the Klippa doesn't sense that. Why doesn't the Klippa sense it? Kedusha, that's the definition of holiness. Holiness senses it. Because God smiles. Holiness receives its sustenance through God's smile. God is intimate. And therefore you receive, you see reality, you, you experience reality the way God experiences reality. From God's point of view, from the inside out. And therefore we sense that there's nothing but God and all there is is God. And therefore everything is godly, our very substance is godly. And therefore we're totally egoless and totally nullified before God. That's the definition of holiness. What's the definition of klipa? Even religion is the antithesis of holiness. It's ego, it's I, cause and effect. How could we come to make such a mistake? Because since we receive our sustenance through the tzimtzum, since God gives us his, gives his life force and his energy to Klippa, like turning his back, therefore, Klippa receives its sustenance from the all-encompassing light. So it doesn't sense the light internally. It's just all-encompassing. And it's remote, it's abstract. So you don't sense God as a vibrant, 
as a total reality. So therefore, God is reduced to an abstraction. God is reduced to the original cause and where the effect. So this is the original explanation of Elohim Acherim. Of course, God is God. I'm a religious person. And you can't deny God. And you can't disobey God. As Bilaam says, if God will order me to do something, I can't disobey. God is the supreme being. But nevertheless, he was evil. He was klipa. Because he was egotistical. He was arrogant. And it wasn't a contradiction. He believed in God, and yet he was egotistical and arrogant. Unlike Abraham. Abraham was holy. And Abraham was the exact opposite, antithesis of arrogance. And Abraham was the most humble and giving and kind and considerate. Bilaam was the exact opposite. Bilaam was a prophet. He spoke to God. He obeyed God. But he was arrogant, egotistical, evil. An evil prophet. Because since Bilaam receives a sustenance from the all-encompassing light of God, and that's so abstract and so removed, that therefore he can come to a level where God becomes an abstraction. God is just the original cause, the omnipotent one, the omniscient one, the original being, the supreme being, the original cause. And God is the cause and I'm the effect, and I'm also somebody, and I'm also something, and I'm also egotistical and arrogant. So that's the original meaning of Elohim Achedim, the, the origin of idolatry is the sense of arrogance, of ego. That you receive your Elohim, you receive your sustenance from God, from God's behind, so to speak, from God's back. That God doesn't show His face, doesn't give it to you with a smile, but throws it to you like behind His back because He despises you and, and He hates klippa and arrogance. But at least they acknowledge God. But then you have a lower level in which the divine energy that, that in, that's internal, that creates and sustains that being, that divine energy, the klipa's total denial of that divine energy, where that divine energy is, is an exile, it's trapped, and the klipa's to totally deny its existence totally deny the existence of God can't accept acknowledge the existence of God where the divine energy is totally in, in exile it's there but it's total in total exile where he totally denies even the, even the existence and this divine energy has no way no way to express itself and that leads to Elohim Acherim, which literally means idolatry or total denial of God. You totally deny God. You deny God's existence. The explanation of these two reasons is as follows. Every created being is animated by two types of divine life force. One is an internalized life force, which is beamed to suit the character and capacity of each individual creature. It is this power that determines the character of each being. It becomes one with it and is felt by it. In fact, this internalized life force constitutes its identity. The second type of life force is of an encompassing transcendental nature. It does not adapt itself to the individual character of each being and is not clothed within it. Rather, 
It animates from without, so to speak, from its own level, above the created being which it animates. The klipat too, are animated by these two types of divine life force. The latter type, since it does not permeate them, does not conflict with their ego. The klipat can thus consider themselves independent beings, even while acknowledging God as the source of their vitality. They need not deny Him. With regard to this type of godly life force, the klipat are called Elohim Acherim, other gods, only because they receive their life from the Achoraim, from the hinder part of God's will. The klipat, however, cannot acknowledge the former internalized type of godly life force, while asserting at the same time that they are separate from God. To do so would be self-contradictory, for as explained, this kind of life force constitutes the very identity of every created being. The klipot therefore completely deny this life force, and it is thus truly in a state of exile within them. It is thus with regard to this life force that the klipot are called Elohim Acherim, other gods, in the literal sense of the term, implying idolatry and a denial of God's unity. This the Alter Rebbe now goes on to say, For inasmuch as the light and life of holiness, that is, the internalized life force, are in a state of exile within the klipa, it does not surrender itself at all to the holiness of God. On the contrary, it soars aloft like an eagle, saying, I am, and there is nothing beside me. Or, as in the statement of Pharaoh, the river is mine, and I have made myself. When you sense the divine energy, you sense it internally, that leads to humility. Then you consciously acknowledge God, you nullify yourself before God. But when you don't sense the divine energy, then, then you become arrogant. Then you not only don't you nullify, don't you surrender yourself to God, on the contrary, you become even more egotistical, you become even more arrogant. Because Pharaoh at least acknowledged that there were forces greater than him. Pharaoh said, you know, I am a self-made man. Who is this God that I should listen to? I'm a self-made man. I made myself, and look at how brilliant. The Egyptians are the most technologically advanced society in the world. We created the irrigation system, we're self-sufficient, we're independent, we're so brilliant. Who needs God? But he did acknowledge, they did worship greater forces. He did acknowledge there was a force greater than him. But he didn't acknowledge God. But here he's saying, he's saying just like Paro said, but here he means it differently than the way Paro meant. Here he means it literally. I am a self-made man. I don't need God. God is simply not part of the picture. I don't believe that there's any power greater than me. There isn't even a power. There isn't even a cause. There isn't even an original cause. Where the person becomes so egotistical, so arrogant, that not only doesn't worship God, doesn't even acknowledge God, even as an original cause. He won't even surrender if it becomes my will versus the will of God. Bilam was evil and arrogant and egotistical and the antithesis of holiness. But when God gave him an order, he was religious. I can't fight God. God is the supreme being. Come on, who am I kidding? God is the creator and he's the cause and I'm the effect. He's the teacher, I'm the student. So yes, I'm a little God, but God is the great God and I have to surrender my will before his will. So at least you have that level of humility, not total surrender, not worship, not holiness in the sense of holiness, but at least that level of surrender. But then you have with a person with the ego, the, the, the klipa totally denies God. I'm not going to bend my will before God. Who is God? God is simply not part of the equation. I don't even think about God. 
I'm not for him, I'm not against him, I couldn't care less, it's irrelevant. Total denial of God. I'm a self-made man, I'm a rugged individual. What does God have to do with anything? I created my own success, I created myself, and I sustain myself, and there is no God, period. This is the lowest level. This is the most distant. This is the total, total disconnect. Total distortion. Ultimate darkness, concealment. That at the same time, simultaneously, you're being created and sustained by God through the divine utterances. And at the same time, that and these divine utterances never left God. They're still part and are part of the absolute unity of God. And the truth is, from God's point of view, you never left God and nothing changed and uh, all there is, you're, you're absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God. And yet, from your perspective, the way you feel internally, emotionally, psychologically, you feel, what God? When God? God simply doesn't exist. There is no God. All there is is me. Me, myself, and I. The most used word in the English language. I. There's nothing else. Period. There's no room for God. And I, usually when there's no room for God, there's no room for anyone else either in your life. <laughs> they usually go hand in hand. A person who has room for God also has room for someone else in their life. A person who has no room for God has no room for anyone else in their life. It's, it's, it's too crowded. There's only, <laughs> there's only room for one. <laughs> one absolute being, and that's myself, me, myself, and I. So God is creating you, but instead of this divine energy having a positive effect on you, of you coming to sense God and to surrender before God and becoming a little more refined, a little less egotistical, a little less selfish, self-centered, on the contrary, you become so egotistical, so arrogant, that you completely deny the reality of God. I made myself, I'm a self-made man. That is why the sages of blessed memory said that arrogance is truly tantamount to idolatry. Seemingly, if you want to say, you want to make a moral statement, how terrible arrogance is, so fine, idolatry is like this, the worst thing in, in the Torah, so you want but still it has to be a connection, just to say that uh, arrogance is so repugnant that it's like idolatry. The Torah is telling us something that's, that's true, that's precise. What's the connection between arrogance and idolatry? I'm arrogant, but I'm, I'm not idolatrous. I believe in God. I'm worshiping God. I'm a religious Jew. So I'm arrogant. Maybe I have reason to be arrogant. I know the whole Talmud backwards and forwards by heart. But how does that make me into an, an idolater? And it says, arrogance is the equivalent of idolatry. God says that I can live with the Jewish people even while they sin. Because God is infinite and His patience is infinite. So even when a person sins, God can still live. We don't, we don't kick him out. But God says, show me an arrogant person and I can't be in His in his cubits, in his four cubits. I can't be in his presence. He hasn't sinned. Matter of fact, he's very knowledgeable in the Torah. But if he's arrogant, God says, I despise him. As infinite as God is, infinite as the patient is, God says, I despise this person. I can't be together with him in the same room. So why is that idolatry? Why is arrogance like idolatry? What's the connection? Continue. For the essence and root of idolatry is that it is regarded as an independent entity, separate from the holiness of God. Idolatry does not imply an outright denial of God, as it is stated in the Gemara that they of the realm of Klippa call him the God of gods, so that although they do not deny his supremacy, 
Their statement, nevertheless, constitutes idolatry. Idolatry is the opposite of the of believing in the existence and the unity of God. But as we explained earlier, the, the unity of God, the existence of God, is not only that God exists or that God is one, but the belief that there is no other reality out, except from God, outside of God. So idolatry is the moment there's ego and there's a sense of self and independence, something outside of God, that's already a denial of God. Because the reality is there is no other reality but God. So the moment you sense that there's anything besides God, you sense yourself as an independent entity, as a self, as an independent entity. That alone is idolatry. That is a denial of the reality and the unity and the existence of God. So that's the root of idolatry. It's not the literal meaning of that. The literal meaning of idolatry is someone who denies God. He believes in two gods. He's pagan. Or he denies God altogether. He's atheist. Denies God altogether. Or even worse than atheism. Atheism at least, at least you're denying God. At least you're dealing with God. At least God is part of, part of your, your vocabulary. Then there's a level where God, you're not even an atheist. I'm not for, I'm not against. God is simply irrelevant. I am a self-made man and God is simply, simply not part of the equation. I have no need for God. God forbid. But that's the lowest level of idolatry. But what's the root? What's the source of idolatry? The root and the source of idolatry is ego, arrogance, independence, self-sufficient, disconnected from God. That sense of self, self, that sense of ego, that's the beginning of idolatry. As the Talmud says, that they call God, they refer to God as the God of gods. God is the supreme being, is the God, the original cause. We are the effect. We are the miniature gods. Right? God has created the man's image. <laughs> God is perfect intellect. God is perfect love. God is perfect, a perfect human being with no flaws. And we are miniature. We have intellect, but it's not as perfect as God. We have emotions, not as perfect as God. That is idolatry. Or you believe in God, not you're denying God, but you believe that God is a being and you're a being. God is a great God and you're a miniature God. God is the cause and you're the effect. That is idolatry. Because the truth is that the world has created something from nothing. We are nothing. We are inherently nothing. And even when God creates us, we still remain nothing. Because we're nothing other than the, than the, the divine energy that's constantly creating us. So it's not like God is bringing us into a state of genuine existence. Even when we exist, we don't really exist. In other words, our existence is nothing other than the, the, the divine energy. That's our substance. There is nothing else. It's not like we become a, a true existence, independent existence. We are constantly dependent on the divine energy that's the constantly, constantly bring us into existence. So we're nothing other than the divine energy. We're just an expression of God's creative energy. That's all we are. Our very core and essence, our very being is nothing other than the, the, the divine energy. So it's not like God is God and we are something. All there is is God. There is nothing else. There is nothing other than God. And the moment we sense a sense of self, of ego, of I, separate, independent, we have our own agendas, we have, a, we have something outside of God, separate from God, independent of God, that's already a lie, a distortion, and that's the root and the source of idolatry. That's the beginning of idolatry. Continue. Their statement nevertheless constitutes idolatry, only because they consider themselves, too, to be separate entities and independent beings. 
and thereby they separate themselves from the holiness of God, since they do not efface themselves before Him. For the supernal holiness rests only on that which is surrendered to Him, as explained above. We learned in chapter 6, the definition of holiness is anything that's nullified before God is holy. Anything that senses that there is no other reality but God, anything that's egoless, that is holy. What's the opposite of holiness? Anything that's not holy is automatically the opposite of holiness. Anything that's egotistical and independent and separate from God, that is the opposite, the antithesis of holiness. Continue, for this reason... For this reason, the Zohar called the Klipot peaks of separation, i.e., they are as haughty as the mountain peaks and are thus separate from God. Just like a mountain. Why does the Zohar refer to Klipot as mountain? Just like mountains are tall. Mountain peaks. They're independent, they're tall. So too, when a person senses himself as a mountain and spreads his wings, he's like a mountain, he's uh, independent, self-sufficient, independent, being... That is that is the definition, the Jewish definition of what we call klipa, the other side, evil. We don't have any words. Really, there are no words in any language that we can really discuss this because this concept doesn't exist in any other language. What people call a healthy ego and to a Jew, anything that's separate and disconnected from God and doesn't acknowledge the truth, the reality that we are totally dependent on God and we are nothing other than the the divine energy than than the expression of God's creative ability who's creating us each and every moment as we speak because otherwise we would revert back to our nothingness and it's, it's it's an astonishing miracle each and every moment God has to create us something from nothing and to constantly continue to create us and to sustain us because we really have no reality, independent reality in our own, Anything, anyone that acknowledges that, that is the definition of holiness. Anything that doesn't acknowledge that, that doesn't express that, that doesn't sense that, that is the antithesis of holiness. And although we all feel that we are alive, we all feel that we have an energy, a life, but we don't sense that the life is a divine energy. We forget of the miracle of life. Life is a miracle. Only God can create life. All the scientists in the world can create the life of a fly. Life is a miracle. It comes from within. It's not a mechanical event. It's not something you build with building blocks. It's not a technical mechanical event. Life comes from within. Life is an astonishing miracle. Only God has the power to give life and He gives us life. But we don't sense the miracle of life. We just take life for granted. We sense that we're alive. We sense an energy. We want, to be, we want to be energetic. We want to be energized. We want to feel energized. And we feel life. But we don't make the connection. There's a total disconnect from life and from the divinity of life. The divine aspect of life. The miracle of life. The totally astonishing miracle of life. There's a total disconnect. If we were living in a sane world, People would be building stadiums in the maternity wards after work. Everyone would come rushing to the maternity wards see the miracle of life instead of watching some silly, silly, uh, silly games. But that's, 
But that's, or, or, or the library, people will be running to the library to study wisdom. Or they have to build stadiums for the Tanya class. But we don't sense, we don't make a connection. It's a total disconnect. That's a total disconnect. It's like we have blinders on. Like we're deaf and dumb and we can't see blind. Deaf and dumb, we can't see, we can't hear, we can't... We don't make a connection. We see life and there's no reaction. Like, so what? What do you mean, so what? Life, it's a miracle, it's divine. Existence, it's a miracle, it's divine. It's inexplicable, it makes no sense. Nature is inexplicable, it makes no sense. It's, it's, it's divine, it's divine. So the definition of holiness is that there's no disconnect. Godliness is transparent. You feel it. You sense it. You are nullified before it. You are humbled by it. You're elevated, refined, transformed, and changed by your encounter with godliness, by your very being and existence, by life itself. That's the most intimate encounter you have with God Himself. So it humbles you. It changes you. It elevates you. And then you have klipa. It's like a shell disconnected. You go through life, the miracle of being, the miracle of existence, the miracle of life. God? What God? Does God even exist? And so much so, until you reach a level where God is simply not even part of the equation. <laughs> While your whole being is God, there's nothing else but God, and you're in total denial. This is such a disconnect. This is the, actually the ultimate expression of God. Only God can create such a paradox, where your whole being, your whole essence is nothing other than the divine. Everything about you is, is the most astonishing miracle. Life itself. Being, creation, existence. And yet the total disconnect. Till you can reach a level of total denial. I'm a self-made man. What does God have to do with anything? It's, it's almost absurd and ludicrous. To deny even that God is the original cause. It, it's so absurd. It, it's... it's, it's almost insulting but that's just the aggressive nature of nature aggressive atheism where God is simply not part of the equation so this is the definition of Klippa versus Kedusha Kedusha is holiness where you sense God and you become intimate with God and you surrender to God and you become more elevated and refined more genuine and Klippa is the exact opposite the root and source of it is a sense of self, which leads to many different levels. And the lowest level is we're total denial of God. God forbid. So much so that God is not even part of the equation. God becomes so irrelevant to anything. My personal life, to my behavior, to my conduct, to my daily life, to, to anything. It just becomes totally irrelevant. Not for, not against, simply not not part of the picture. But this constitutes a denial of God's true unity, since His unity implies that all is esteemed as nothing before Him, and that all is utterly nullified before Him and before His will which animates them all, and which constantly brings them into being out of nothingness. Arrogance, therefore, which is the aggrandizement of one's own identity, is diametrically opposed to the surrender of one's identity, which is a corollary of the concept of God's unity. Arrogance thus represents a denial of the unity of God, and for this reason, the Gamada equates it with idolatry. To summarize briefly the points made in this chapter, through many and varied Tzimtzumim, the Divine Word brought into being Klipot and the Sitra Akhra, who perceive themselves to be entities separate from God. 
For this reason, God's word is described in the Torah as speech, for the element of separation found in human speech, where the spoken word becomes separated from the speaker, is also present in the divine speech of creation. However, this separateness exists only in the perspective from which the created beings view their relationship with their source. From God's perspective, there is no separation at all, for everything is united with Him and is contained within Him, even after it is created. With this, the Alter Rebbe concludes one step of the discussion begun in chapter 20. There he stated that in order to explain how all the commandments of the Torah are encapsulated in the two commandments concerning idolatry, it is first necessary to clarify the true meaning of idolatry. This in turn necessitated an in-depth discussion of the meaning of the unity of God, which idolatry denies. The Alter Rebbe has thus far explained that God's unity means not only that there is but one God, rather, God is the only existing being. All else is as naught before Him. Thus any feeling, such as the klipot feel, of having an identity of one's own, apart from God, actually represents idolatry. In the following two chapters, the Alter Rebbe now resumes his discussion, explaining how the above concept of God's unity finds expression in all the mitzvot of the Torah. Okay, so in these three chapters, 20, 21, 22, he firmly explained what is the mitzvah of the unity of God, the belief in the existence of God, that not only there's only one God, but there's no other reality apart from God, and the opposite of that is idolatry, like arrogance. That's why the Talmud says, whoever is arrogant, God can't stand anyone who's arrogant. Why can't, can't God stand who's arrogant? God is infinite, his patience is infinite, he can stand sin, but he can't stand arrogance. Because arrogance denies the absolute essence of God. Arrogance is I, ego. Anyone who is arrogant, who senses himself as being apart from God, he can be religious. Very religious. Very knowledgeable. But that sense of arrogance, of holier-than-thou and arrogance, that sense of ego of I, is a contradiction and a conflict with the very essence of God. That is idolatry. It's denying the true reality of God. The true reality of God is no other reality but God. So how can you feel arrogant and egotistical? How can you feel a sense of self? Who, who is the self? Other than God? Separate from God? Independent of God? In holiness, you sense yourself as being a refle- an expression of God's creative ability. And therefore, your whole life becomes holy and godly. Your whole life is dedicated to worshiping God, serving God, leading a godly life, fulfilling your divine mission in this world, bringing godliness into this world, changing the world, elevating the world, engaging in the world and transforming it into a holy place. Everything is godly. You're on a mission. Everything in your life is permeated with godliness. From the act of eating, the act of sleeping, the simplest, most mundane act. Everything that you do in your life is really focused and dedicated to to godliness, permeated with godliness. There's nothing else. You don't have any other agendas. God's agenda and this is my personal agenda. My whole being, my whole essence is nothing other than an expression of the divine. There is nothing else. But the moment you become arrogant and you have your own agendas and you have a sense of self apart and separate from God, even though you haven't sinned, you haven't done anything wrong, God says, I can't stand this person. It's idolatry. Talmud is not playing with words. It's not just telling us how, how, how abhorrent arrogance is. It's telling us that arrogance is idolatry. It's the root and source of idolatry. 
you're not bowing down in front of any idols and you're not denying the unity the, the reality of God but it's idolatry because the ultimate reality of God is there, there is no other reality but God so the moment there's a sense of self a sense of ego is separate and apart from God that is idolatry that is the root and source of idolatry so now that we understand what is the ultimate meaning of the unity of God and the mitzvah of believing in the existence and the unity and we know that the opposite of it is idolatry now we'll continue uh, next time in the next chapter now he begins to explain what the Talmud says that the why the first of the ten commandments they heard directly from God that these two commandments contain the entire Torah because every time you fulfill a mitzvah you're fulfilling the mitzvah of believing in the unity of God and every time you transgress any of the 365 prohibitions it's, it's in a subtle way that is the equivalent to idolatry that was the question he posed earlier on what's the connection how can you include all the mitzvot all the positive mitzvot under the heading of believing the existence and the unity of God and how can you include all the prohibitions in the heading under the heading of idolatry not to, not to worship idols but with this introduction of the deepest and ultimate meaning what does it mean we believe in God and the unity of God not only that there is one God but that there is nothing other than God and once we understand this very clearly and what is the meaning of idolatry arrogance is idolatry any sense of ego any sense of self that is idolatry so this concept is not just a Kabbalistic concept it's, it's a concept that's really hinted in the Talmud the Talmud says whoever is arrogant is the equivalent of idolatry and the only explanation is with this, with this understanding, with this concept of the idea of the unity of God. That the unity of God means there is nothing other than God. God is one. There is only God. There is no other reality but God. Only with that concept could we possibly understand the statement of the Talmud that whoever is, idol- is arrogant is the equivalent of idolatry. Otherwise the Talmud makes no sense. What's the connection to idolatry to arrogance? A person could be very religious. He can know the whole Talmud backwards and forwards. And he hasn't sinned once in his life now. How can you say, call him an idolater? Talmud is not playing with words. There is no explanation for this. The only explanation is, and God says, a person who sins, I can live with their sin. God says, I live with the Jewish people, I dwell with the Jewish people, even when they're impure, even while they're sinning. No problem. Find me someone who's arrogant, and God says, I can't stand in his four cubits. I can't be together with him. He hasn't sinned. He's, all he's done is mitzvah, but he's arrogant. God says, I, I hate this person. Can you imagine God saying that about someone? The holier-than-thou arrogant person. Why? It makes no sense. The only way to explain it is with this explanation that we just learned. Because what is the meaning of belief in God? If God is just an abstraction, to clip a God is an abstraction. This all-encompassing reality is totally beyond our consciousness. And therefore, it's no contradiction. I can believe in God and I can believe in myself at the same time. <laughs> I can believe in God, worship God and worship myself <laughs> at the same time. I worship God a little more than I worship myself, but I worship myself too. But if you understand the true meaning of the unity of God, if you receive the divine energy and you receive it with a smile you receive it and you become intimate with God and you, you realize that there is no other reality but God and you internalize it and you absorb that and you receive it and you appreciate it 
and you sense it, then you rise above your ego. When you rise above your ego, you rise above yourself, then you become a vessel for God. Then you become one with God. Then you, you are connected with God. That's the definition of holiness. So there's no arrogance. There's no ego. There's no superiority complexes and holier-than-thou attitudes. I'm better, I'm closer, and you're worse. There's no ego, there's no I. And every Jew has the same holy spark. and has that same holy soul. And that same readiness, holy potential in the moment of truth. Every Jew is ready to give up his life for God. So every Jew has that same level of holiness. How can I look down at another Jew? I have a sense of arrogance and holier-than-thou attitude. So this is, this is what the Talmud means. And arrogance is the equivalent of idolatry. Because this is the root and source of all idolatry. Of course, there are many levels. There's a level of idolatry. You acknowledge God. You worship God. But you worship yourself too. God is God. But He's God of many gods. I'm one of them. Then you have a level where you can disobey God. You deny God. Or God has become so irrelevant that you, you don't even deny God. He's simply not... I'm a self-made man. What does God have to do with anything? I didn't ask Him. I didn't ask for His help. And, and I'm on my own. And, and uh, I don't need Him. And it's totally irrelevant. I don't care if He does exist. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Total denial. <clears throat> How can a person be in total denial? Where does this psycholo- psychological symptom come from? A person can be in total denial about himself. So it all originates when you, when you are in total denial of God. You all, God is all-encompassing. God is sustaining you and creating you at this very moment. The truth is that we never left God. At all, we're absolutely unified in the absolute unity of God. But we're in total denial. So much so, we even deny that God even exists. Many people deny God, God even exists. When you're in total denial about the most basic, core truth, your truth, God is your truth. You're in basic denial of your core truth. You think you're not going to be in denial about the other things and areas in your life. You'll be in total denial. That's where we have a situation, a situation, a generation of total denial. When we're in total denial about ourselves, and total, totally deluded about ourselves. We're deluded in denial about something that touches the very core and essence of our being. You think we're going to be in touch with reality? We're going to be in touch with other people? We're going to be in touch with the reality around us, even in touch with ourselves? You can't. But on the other hand, the more humble you are, the more in touch you are with your core and essence, which is Hashem, then the more in touch you'll be with yourself, the more honest you'll be with yourself, the more in touch you'll be with yourself, the more in touch you'll be with the people around you and the world around you. So the believing Jew who's really conscious of his holiness is really the one who's most in touch with the world around him. The most down to earth and the most in touch. That's why the Jewish people have survived for 3,800 years. We're all the mighty Romans and Greeks. Where are they? All forgotten. Footnotes in history. Blown away by the wind. And yet the Jew has never left. Because the Jew is firmly planted in this world. When you're not in denial about the deepest, the most important truth in your life, 
which is Hashem, then you're not in denial about yourself. You're in touch with yourself. You're in touch with the people around you. You're in touch with the world around you. You're down to earth. You're real. You're grounded. And, and, and that, that's eternal. That's indestructible. But if you're in denial of God, then you're in total denial of yourself, delusional, and total denial of the people around you, and total denial of the world around you. And that's why whatever you're building is castles in the air, which won't last, can't last. Look at what happened to the mighty Romans and the mighty Greeks. Vanish, poof, communism, poof, gone. It never existed. Because it's castles in the air. There's no reality. Atheism, denial of God. It's delusional. God is our truth. There is no other truth. There is no other reality. So if you're out of touch, you're in denial about the most core truth, your truth. So out of touch. You have it so wrong, so distorted. If you can't think straight in one area in your life, in the most important area in your life, the area that hits home most, your own being, your own existence, your own reality, if you're not in touch with your own reality, with the reality of God, which is the core and essence of your being, how can you be in touch with anything else in your life? And it's just building castles in the air. 